True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The woman's text message pings on her boyfriend's phone. He answers immediately and waits for her reply. But it doesn't come. He doesn't know it's in that moment, but it will never come. She will never respond again, and he will never see her alive again either. She's fallen into a trap, one set by a greedy man who's decided that she owes him her life. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht. And you're listening to episode 97, The Murder of Zara Hector. This episode is sponsored by Just Wellness. Now, I don't have children. Well, not human ones at least. But I know that right now families are dealing with some serious exam stress in the head-up to that all-important report card at the end of the year. Stress like that can have major health implications, so you'll want to be proactive about protecting your health during this period. Just Wellness's olive extract and silicium blend is exactly what you need during this hectic time. Silicium's anti-anxiety Emotional wellness and stress reduction properties are really helpful in reducing anxiety around exams and the sleeplessness which may result. Getting started on this Just Wellness Blend ASAP is key. And for the Black Friday weekend, Friday 25 November to 27 November only, you'll get 30% off this and other Just Wellness products. And their current promo of buy two and get free delivery will still apply. Place your order by visiting the Just Wellness website at justwellness.co.za. A huge thank you to Just Wellness for their support of True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Tessa DeVette for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon and PayPal, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. Patreons get an exclusive episode every month, as well as access to ad-free versions of each week's episode. There are currently 22 Patreon-exclusive episodes on the platform, so if you're keen to access those, head on over to Patreon and search True Crime South Africa or click on the link in the show notes. As you all should know by now, my first book, Samurai Sword Murder, is out in bookshops. It's also available for purchase on Amazon and the audiobook will be out soon too. If you're based in Pretoria or the surrounds, I'm going to be at Exclusive Books Brooklyn Mall on Saturday the 19th of November at 4pm. I'm going to be in conversation with Dr. Gerard Labaskachny and we'll be discussing the samurai sword murder and all things true crime. I would love to see you there. And it is on a Saturday, so you can make an outing of it and not have to worry about timing and rushing about. 
Please RSVP to events at exclusivebooks.co.za to reserve your seats. I remember the case I'm covering in today's episode from when it happened. When the victim, Zara Hector, disappeared, it was widely publicized in the media as her family and friends desperately tried to find her. I remember hearing that the worst news had been made public and that Zora had not been found alive. But I hadn't really followed the case after that. For some reason, I'd assumed that this was an intimate partner murder. When I started researching, I realized that many others had made that same assumption too, and the woman's boyfriend at the time had suffered a huge amount of backlash on social media. The truth was very different, though. And while Zara had indeed been betrayed in the worst way by someone she trusted, it was not her intimate partner. My sources for today's case include an episode of Distart Tian, as well as several media articles. So let's get into episode 97, The Murder of Zara Hector. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Zara Hector grew up with her siblings in a close-knit family in Cape Town. She was just 15 when she fell pregnant with her first daughter and this seems to have been the beginning of a significantly difficult period for Zara, when she herself would admit she'd lost her way in life. By 2009, though, when Zara was in her mid-twenties, she'd started to work on turning her life around. She gave birth to a son in 2011 and started to attend church, where she connected with a pastor who counseled her. The man would later explain how Zara had been through a very difficult period, and with the birth of her son, she desperately wanted to figure things out and set an example for him as well as her older daughter. She also said that she wanted to become part of his congregation so that one day, when the time came, she would have a church to be buried out of. These words would ring in his ears five years later. Zara began working as a fleet officer at a company in Cape Town, and she would stay at the job for almost five years. While there, she started her own business and was registered as a director. 2014 would be a big year for Zara, as she started studying, wanting to further her education, and she changed industries, shifting into hospitality. Zara began working at the Oostenbach Lodge in Kales River as an admin assistant. Her life was very busy, and she relied heavily on her family to help her with childcare. She worked long hours and eventually ended up living at the lodge because it made getting to work easier and she received a discount on accommodation. In 2015, Zara started dating a man called Mark, who also worked at the lodge. He did well financially and would occasionally let Zara use his silver BMW Z3 when he wasn't using it. On the 14th of March 2016, 
Zara received a message from her boyfriend asking that she return his car to him the following day as he needed to use it. She confirmed that she would do that. The next morning at 8.20am, Zara sent Mark a message saying that she was on her way to him. He responded to her message, but got no reply in return. The hours ticked by, and there was no sign of Zara at Mark's house in Blackheath. He called her several times, and she didn't answer. He called Oostenbach Lodge, and the staff there confirmed that Zara had left around 8.20 when she'd sent Mark the message, but they hadn't seen her since then. Mark became more and more concerned throughout the day and reached out to Zara's family, who'd also not heard from her. It was not like her to not be in contact with her children during the day, and as night fell, the streets of Kales River came alive with people searching for Zara. It wouldn't be long until they received the first piece of information about where Zara had last been seen. A woman who lived near the lodge and knew Zara as well as Mark Z3 said she'd seen the car reversed into the garage of a nearby home. The house was just a few blocks away from Oostenbach Lodge. It belonged to the parents of one Ronaldo van Royen. Zara's boyfriend knew Ronaldo. He and Zara had been friends for quite some time, and he knew that she often visited him. Zara's family members immediately made contact with van Royen, who told them that he had seen Zara very briefly that morning, but she'd left his house around 10am and he hadn't seen or heard from her again. Zara Hector was reported missing on the 16th of March 2016. The information regarding the vehicle she was last seen driving, her description and her last known movements, including the visit to Ronaldo van Royen's home, was given to police. Missing Person Advocacy Organisation, the Pink Ladies, circulated the info on a poster, and soon the missing mother of two was on everyone's lips, and there were many eyes on the lookout for the distinctive silver BMW Z3. Police interviewed Ronaldo van Royen as he seemed to be the last person who'd seen Zara. He told police a similar story to what he told Zara's family when they'd called, except he included two additional details. Ronaldo said that at 1.30am on the morning of the 15th of March, Zara had sent him a text message telling him that she would be visiting him the next morning as she needed to borrow some money. At around 8.30am that morning, she'd arrived and he claimed that he and Zara had done drugs together. Ronaldo was a known drug user in the area. His parents had worked tirelessly to try and help him get clean. His father, a retired police officer, knew exactly how much damage a substance use disorder could do to someone's life. When Ronaldo's wife had filed for divorce over his drug use, They'd allowed their son to come home and live with them in Gertrude Street, Cales River, but he was not supposed to be doing drugs on the premises. 
although Zara's family would never specifically speak of her struggles with substances, it would later seem to be accepted that it was possible she'd relapsed at that time. Ronaldo van Royen said that after he and Zara had used drugs together, he'd given her some more to take with her, and she'd left his house in the Z3 at 10.20am. When asked if she'd indeed borrowed money from him, as she'd indicated she wanted to in the message, Ronaldo said he hadn't had anything to give her, and she'd already owed him money from a previous occasion. When asked why Zara's car had been reversed into his garage and not just parked in the very spacious driveway if she was only visiting for a short while, Ronaldo said that Zara had specifically requested that she park there as she wanted the car to be out of sight. Late on the afternoon of the 17th of March, a patrolling police officer spotted a silver BMW Z3 parked in Rochester Road Observatory. A quick check-in confirmed that this was indeed the vehicle police were searching for. The area around the car was cordoned off, and the investigating officer on Zara's case, Sergeant Denise Perrell, came to the scene. When Zara's family were informed that the vehicle had been found, their greatest fear was that Zara would be found deceased inside the vehicle but when the boot was popped, there was no sign of her. Despite this, the car was still a significant piece of evidence, and forensics technicians combed the car both on-site and back at the police impound for any evidence that may prove useful. One thing that was immediately apparent was that the tyres that were on the vehicle did not belong to the car. Zara's boyfriend, the owner of the vehicle, confirmed this as well. The tyres on the vehicle were most definitely not the tyres he'd put on the car. Soon after the discovery of the vehicle became public knowledge, additional tips came in to Sergeant Paddle. A woman who lived near Ronaldo van Royen's home said that on the 15th of March, she'd seen a man she knew as Ronaldo van Royen driving a silver BMW Z3 near his home in Gertrude Street. She had not seen Zara Hector in the car, but she did see that he was being followed by a maroon-coloured car being driven by a man she identified as Tofik Ibrahim. This was the first time police had heard the name Tofik Ibrahim. The young man in his early 20s lived a low-key life, but further investigation showed that he, too, had a substance use disorder and was a known drug user. Shortly after Tofik's name came into the picture, Sergeant Denise Paddle received another tip. A man who lived in Bishop Lavis told her that he'd been visited by Ronaldo van Royen and Tofik Abraham on the 17th of March. The men had wanted to sell a silver BMW Z3 that one of them was driving. They told him that the car was stolen. The caller said he hadn't heard about Zara's disappearance at that point, so he hadn't put two and two together, and although he admitted that he wasn't above having purchased stolen cars in the past, 
he had a bad feeling about this car and told Ronaldo and Tofik that he didn't have the money to buy any cars at that point. Sergeant Paddle now had more than enough evidence to bring in the men in connection with Zara's disappearance. Although at this point it was not entirely impossible that Zara had willingly left the car with the men and disappeared of her own accord, Paddle knew the men had information about her whereabouts, one way or another. She called Ronaldo van Royen in, and he willingly came to the police station on the 24th of March. While that interview was taking place, 40 kilometers away on a farm in Paul, farm workers made a horrific discovery. Those working the land on the farm had noticed a bad smell in the area for a few days. They complained about it to the farm owner, and that day they'd set out to find the source of the stench. Soon, a telephone call came in to Sergeant Donovan van Royen, no relation to Ronaldo, at the Criminal Record Centre in Paul. The farm workers had found what they believed to be a human body. Within 15 minutes, Sergeant van Royen was at the scene. He'd been exposed to the smell of death enough times in his career to know that when he approached the bundle on the side of the dirt road, there was most certainly some form of human remains in there. The body had been bundled tightly, first wrapped in blue plastic, then in black plastic sheeting which had paint splatters on it. Finally, the body had been tied with white electrical cable. Painstakingly, police officers unwrapped the bundle, checking each layer for any evidence and bagging the items for further testing back at the lab. Finally, the bundle revealed its horrifying contents, the body of an adult female. The victim was severely decomposed in the March Western Cape heat, but the clothing she was wearing and her facial features and hair matched up with a known missing person. Sergeant van Royen was almost certain he'd just discovered the body of the missing mother of two from Kales River, Zora Hector. Sergeant Denise Paddle was still engaged in an interview with person of interest, Ronaldo van Royen, when a colleague walked in and told her that a body had been discovered. This, of course, was done entirely intentionally in front of Ronaldo to gauge his reaction. The young man, who had up until that point been sticking to his story that Zara had left his house alive and well, and denying the claims that had been made about him driving and trying to sell her car, visibly sunk down into his chair when he heard the news. Sergeant Paddle looked at Ronaldo. She could see that his whole demeanour had changed, and decided to let him stew for a moment. She left the room and decided to call the other man who'd been named, Tofik Ibrahim, Sergeant Paddle had spoken with Tofik when his name had first come up, but the man had denied any knowledge of Zara's whereabouts and said he hadn't been at Ronaldo's home that day. When the detective called the man that day, though, 
and informed him that Ronaldo was at the police station being questioned and that a body had been discovered in Paul, the man immediately burst into tears. Through sobs, he told Sergeant Parrell that he'd lied to her and that he did know what had happened to Zara Hector. He said he hadn't killed her, but that Ronaldo von Royen had, and he was present when her body was disposed of. Sergeant Paddle instructed him to come down to the police station immediately or she'd be sending someone to arrest him. Sergeant Paddle returned to the interview room where, where Ronaldo was waiting, sat down and told the man that it was time to start telling the truth. Between Ronaldo and Tofik, two very similar versions around Sarah Hector's death would emerge but with one distinct and very important difference, the person who'd actually killed her. Ronaldo van Royen said the following in his statement. Zara had sent him a text message at 1.30am on the 15th of March, telling him she would be arriving at his home early that morning and she wanted to borrow money. He said... He'd been surprised at the request because Zara already owed him 5,000 rand, but he agreed that she could come over. When she'd arrived, Zara had requested to reverse the Z3 into his garage so that it would be mostly out of sight of passers-by. They'd then sat in the garage and taken drugs. Most sources say the drug in question was took. Ronaldo said he'd told Zara he couldn't lend her any more money until she paid him what she owed him, but as a token of friendship, he'd given her some drugs to take with her. Ronaldo said that Tofik had arrived at the house while Zara was there, and when he arrived, he left Tofik and Zara alone in the garage while he went inside to make coffee. When he'd come back outside with the coffee, he found Zara dead on the floor and Sofiq was standing over her with a bloodied hammer in his hand. Ronaldo claimed that Sofiq could not explain why he'd killed Zara, but he had started to threaten Ronaldo, and said that if he didn't help him dispose of her body, he would kill him and his family. Tofik Ibrahim, on the other hand, told Sergeant Paddle that he had arrived at Ronaldo's house to find Zara there in the garage, but he said that it was him that had gone inside to make coffee, and when he came out, he found Zara slumped over in a sitting position, with blood pooling around her. He said that Ronaldo had made him wrap Zara's body in plastic and load it into the boot of the Z3, and Ronaldo had driven the vehicle while Tofik had driven behind him in his mother's maroon car. Somewhere along the road to Paul, Ronaldo had slowed down and thrown Zara's cell phone out the window on the side of the road. Tofik said he'd followed Ronaldo to the farm and helped him offload Zara's body onto the dirt road. He said he'd lied because he was afraid of Ronaldo. Both men were placed under arrest for the murder of Zara Hector and the theft of the BMW Z3. When Zara's family were informed that the two men had been arrested, 
they were both relieved and horrified. Zara had considered Ronaldo a friend, and they couldn't believe he would betray her so deeply. Police, though, had no doubt. The evidence was mounting up, and by the time they seized Ronaldo's garage, that pile of evidence would only increase. In the garage of the house at Gertrude Road, Kales River, a treasure trove of physical evidence presented itself. The walls, floor, ceiling, and several items in the garage were all splattered with blood, which would later be confirmed to belong to Zara Hector. A hammer was found, which, although it had been wiped down, still had traces of blood in the cracks of the wood handle. A pile of black plastic, spattered with paint, was also found. Ronaldo's father would later confirm he'd used the plastic for painting jobs he occasionally did, and there were several pieces missing from the pile. He also said he'd kept a piece of blue plastic sheeting in the garage, which had come from a mattress he'd purchased. He'd intended to repurpose it when he painted again, but it had gone missing when Zara did. With regard to the attempted sale of the vehicle, both men blamed the other for arranging the meeting with the man in Bishop Lavis, who they had attempted to sell the vehicle to. When that man refused to take it, they'd sold the tyres off the car and then dumped it in observatory. Police were able to trace the Fitman Centre in Elsie's River to which the men had sold the tyres. The tyres were recovered and the owner provided a statement about the day in question. The man said that Tofik had come into the shop to negotiate with him and Van Royen had stood outside by the car waiting. The car would be further linked to Van Royen and Ibrahim through fingerprints found in and on the car. The body found on the farm that day would conclusively be identified as Zara Hector by DNA. Her devastated family laid her to rest on the 1st of April 2016. The service was conducted by the pastor who five years before had met Zara when she was ready to turn her life around. He spoke to the gathered crowd, explaining how he had met Zara and how committed she had been to her children and her recovery. Then, one of Zara's best friends stood up and read out a letter Zara herself had written just two weeks before her death. It read in part, quote, I'm thankful for being able to read, because now I'm able to expose myself to new habits in light of changing my life and self, end quote. She went on in the letter to express how grateful she was to her family for helping to care for her children. Her teenage daughter also spoke at the funeral. Speaking directly to her little brother, she said that her grief was amplified by the fact that her brother, who was just five years old, would now have so few memories of their mother. She said, quote, Mommy always told me to forgive and I hope one day you won't be resentful of her death, but rather jovial of the adventures she had and the life she lived. End quote. 
those present wore pink to remember Zara's love of pink nail polish, the only shade she would ever use. These pink clothing items would continue to be worn as the trial of her alleged murderers started as a daily reminder of the victim's presence in court. Rinalda van Rooyen chose not to apply for bail in the run-up to the trial, and although Tofik Ibrahim did apply, his application was declined. The judge said that the severity of the crime meant it was simply too risky to release someone accused and with such significant evidence against them into the community for any period of time. As pre-trial motions began, Advocate Maria Marshall stood for the prosecution. The presiding judge would be Judge Lister Nuka. In August 2017, the defence teams for both Van Royen and Ibrahim submitted plea deals to the prosecution for consideration. The details of these deals were not made public, but they clearly did not meet the prosecution's expectations because they were declined and soon after, both parties pleaded not guilty to all charges against them, and the trial began in earnest. The prosecution laid out the evidence in a timeline. They were able to place each man at each point of contact with both Zara and the BMW Z3 through both physical evidence and witness testimony, as well as the men's own statements. The testimony of the pathologist in this case was harrowing as the doctor described how Zara had died from blunt force trauma to her skull. She had endured five blows to the skull with an object that matched up with the blood-stained hammer found in the Van Royen's garage. The blows had been so severe that Zara's skull had been split into three pieces. The pathologist testified that her brain would have been unable to survive such an injury and she would have lost consciousness and her heart would have stopped beating soon after. Neither Ronaldo van Royen nor Tofik Ibrahim testified in their own defence. This, of course, could not be held against them in a legal sense, but it was really difficult for Zara's family to know that the men would not sit on the stand and have to answer the prosecutor's questions. Despite there being significant proof that Tofik and Ronaldo were present and involved in Zara's murder, it was not possible to establish who the actual killer was. The prosecution took the stance that both men were equally responsible, regardless of who had actually swung the weapon that had killed Zara. A motive was equally difficult to pinpoint, but it seemed very likely that it had been purely financial and geared by the men's need for drugs. Zora did not have the money she owed Ronaldo, and perhaps when she told him that she was headed off to return her boyfriend's car, he decided that this was the best way to get his money back and much more. On the 2nd of May 2018, with both men still blaming the other for the crime, Tofik Ibrahim and Ronaldo van Royen were found guilty of the murder of Zara Hector and the theft of the Z3 vehicle. 
Sadly, Zara's boyfriend Mark would not live to see justice for Zara. He passed away from natural causes soon after the judgment was handed down. Ronaldo van Royen's mother also passed away soon after her son was found guilty. In the sentencing phase of the trial, the defence asked the judge to keep in mind that the crime was committed in a drug-induced haze and that both young men had never been found guilty of any other violent crimes. The judge disagreed, though, and felt that despite the aforementioned factors, the murder was cold-blooded and clearly calculated given how far the men had gone to cover up their crime. He agreed with the prosecution that the motive was likely financial, and he felt that given that Zara was a good friend of Ronaldo's, this only made the crime more heinous. He handed down a life sentence to each man. After the sentencing, Zara's family gathered on the stairs of the courthouse. Dressed in their pink for Zara shirts, they presented a united front. As they spoke of the serious damage Zara's murder had done to her children. While they were grateful for the life sentences handed down and believed they were fitting, they also dispelled the myth of closure, saying that there is no closure when Zara will always be dead. It's never easy to walk away from a case like this not knowing who really did the deed. And yes, to an extent, both men are probably equally responsible. But I do tend to think it was likely Ronaldo van Royen who swung the hammer that day. Of the two men, he had the closest connection to Zara. He knew her. She had come to see him. She had owed him money. Ronaldo's parents had only ever seen Tofik at their house once before that day. He seems to have arrived after Zara did. He was consistently spotted following Ronaldo, who was driving the Z3. That doesn't scream him being the driver of this crime to me. And there's one other thing, which is really just something I noticed and may or may not mean anything. But here it is, and do with it what you will. When Tofik gave his statements about returning to the garage to find Zara Hector dead, he did not mention how she had come to be dead. He said only that she was slumped over and blood was coming from her head. When Ronaldo gave his statement, however, he specifically mentioned walking in to find Tofik gripping a hammer. This was before it was confirmed that Zara had died of blunt force trauma. It was before police found the blood-stained hammer in his garage. Tofik didn't seem to know what the murder weapon had been, but Ronaldo did. Before anyone else knew, and in my mind at least, there's only one way he could have known that. If he was the one that swung it at Zara Hector's head, five times, and split her skull into three pieces. In the weeks and months after Zara's murder, her family expressed frustration 
at how everyone was coming up with their own stories about what had happened, creating stories and narratives that served only to victim blame. They said that they were so sick and tired of strangers talking about Zara like they knew her, just because they knew her name. So, I do not want to repeat that mistake and further that trauma. I do not profess to know the depths of the soul that was Zara Hector. I cannot speak of her as though I knew her, nor would I wish to. I also don't really care what she was doing on the day she was murdered, whether she was taking drugs to feed the demon of substance use disorder or not. That makes absolutely no difference to me. We all have our vices, our demons. It's only our poison that looks different. For one, it's the toxic smoke inhaled from a pipe. For another, it's the rush of overworking themselves until they can no longer function. It's all interchangeable, really. But we like to look down our noses at those whose vices look different to ours, as though we are somehow better, more deserving. I would like to live to see a day when a victim of a crime who may have also lived with substance use disorder is not shamed posthumously for their disease. I don't know that I ever will, but it would be really nice not to even see the words printed or hear them mentioned. Maybe, though, Zara's struggles with substances just made this crime even worse. Because she was trying. She was clearly trying so desperately to care for her children, earn a living, and live a life she could be proud of. And sometimes, that journey came with a few valleys. Sadly, she'd fallen into one of those valleys on the 15th of March 2016, and someone made sure she would never get out of it. Almost a year to the day before her life was taken from her, Zara Hector posted a few lines on her Facebook profile that I feel are fitting to end this episode with. Because who knew Zara Hector better than the woman herself? Today, I looked in the mirror. As I took a good look at myself, I studied every part of the person looking back at me. And for the first time, I really, truly, honestly liked what I saw. Zara Hector, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 97, The Murder of Zara Hector. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week 
with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.